Again, I'd like to invite you back to that scripture that we read just a few minutes ago earlier in our service, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 54 through 58. There are a lot of great therefores in the scriptures. In fact, I think and have pondered many times how good it would be to preach a series on the great therefores of the New Testament. For example, and you could probably quote these too, uh, one of my favorites, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified with, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Romans is full of them. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Uh, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, maybe one of the most famous ones of all, Romans 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then who could forget 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we have been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin, every weight, and the sin which ease so clings to us so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then, of course, the one that's in our text that uh, we all probably, if you've been saved for any amount of time, maybe uh, more than others have memorized. And that's the one we read in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers. I mean, there are 11 therefores in 1 Corinthians alone. Um, some obviously more significant than others, but probably none more significant in 1 Corinthians than this one. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, and perhaps this is an understatement, but it is one of the great connecting words in all of biblical literature. I call it the holy hinge of Paul's theology. Um, he uses it um, very often, if not most often, to link things together in his mind. And often what he hinges together uh, for his readers and for us is our beliefs and our behaviors. And the little word therefore instructs us how that we can take that theology that Paul has given to us and live it out on a daily basis as disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul intends to do when he starts out that last verse of chapter 15 with therefore. When he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, see, he is taking that little word therefore and he is packing and summarizing in that one little connecting word all the theology that has previously taken place in chapter 15. Um, it's the same concept that he does in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, he says, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. That, that's the one we have. He says in chapter 12 and verse 1 of Romans, therefore, and all the theology of Romans chapter 9 through 11 is packed in that little word, therefore. And so all of Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 15 um, about salvation, about the primacy of the gospel, about lives, our lives personally and our ministries corporately, all are packed into this little word and, and what it means about the resurrection of Jesus Christ for our lives. And so it's not really too far to say that Paul wants the Corinthians and he wants us to know that Jesus' resurrection has impact, not only in our futures, but in our present. 
He wants us to know that we have life not only after we die, but before we die. Um, Paul wants the Corinthians and us to realize that the death and resurrection of Jesus doesn't just get us into the kingdom, it also gets the kingdom into us. And so when he says, my beloved brothers, he wants you to know that living this kind of victorious life, living out the victory of Jesus, it's not something for a set of elite Christians, just a few people who have really you know, have made it in life and have attained to higher levels than anybody else. No, he says, my beloved brothers. He says warm words, family terms. He says, my beloved brothers, all of you. In fact, he wants every one of us as Christians to realize that what he's talking about in these final few verses that summarizes the practical application of all the theology of 1 Corinthians 15 is for all of us. That This is what the normal, average, ordinary Christian life ought to look like. So how does understanding the resurrection of Jesus Christ change my life as a believer? And how does that belief affect my behavior? Well, it does so by connecting my future with my present. So I want to take some time this morning and unpack both aspects, how the resurrection impacts our future and our present, and then take a few moments and connect those two as the Apostle Paul wants us to do for our practical life. So let me do that one at a time. Number one, resurrection victory. That's what I'm calling it because the word victory is used three times in that last verse or two. Um, resurrection victory changes our future. So let me give you the theology. The theology that Paul's trying to get and summarizes up in these last couple of verses is that Jesus' uh, death and resurrection is a victory for us. It is a victory over death. In fact, here's how he phrases it. Death is swallowed up in victory. That is a quotation of Isaiah 25 and verse 8, which also adds to it that there should be no more tears, there will be no more crying. All those former things Isaiah says, are going to be passed away. And then he goes on to ask a couple rhetorical questions, knowing the answer to it, because Jesus is alive. And he says, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Those are quotations taken from Hosea chapter 13 and verse 14. And what Paul does is he calls up some covenant language verses that are applied specifically to Israel, and he broadens them out to all the nations, because what Paul wants us to know and what he wanted the Corinthians to know, to know when their church was full of Gentiles was that salvation is not just for Jewish people. It's for everyone. And if you put your faith in Christ and your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, that this hope is yours. That death is no longer the victor anymore. That Jesus Christ has given us the greatest victory of all time. So much so that the author George Herbert once wrote that death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. In other words, it's been reduced. That death really isn't the power over us that it once was, obviously. That Jesus Christ has conquered that. So one of the ramifications of that is that we don't have to fear death anymore. In fact, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And one of our greatest, if not the greatest enemies, will be destroyed. Uh, notice Paul's not saying, though, by saying those two verses, he's not saying that suffering and death have been removed because they are not. They are still part of our fallen world. Someday they will be. But even then, even now, though death still has a limited power in our lives, it cannot ultimately defeat us. The victory of Jesus' resurrection 
does not keep us from death, but what it does is keep us through death. Do you see what I'm saying there? Let me say it again. The victory of Jesus, the resurrection victory, does not keep us from death, meaning physical death, but it keeps us through this physical death. And that's why the resurrection, Paul says, has taken out the sting of death. That's what uh, verse 57 says. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The interesting thing about it, that word sting in the Greek is that it often is used in Greek literature to refer to a scorpion and a scorpion's tail that has the stinger on it. Um, I looked up on the internet um, the most lethal scorpions on the planet and there are, believe it or not, quite a number of them in different places all over the world. But the one that everybody was pretty much in agreement on that is the most lethal scorpion of all the scorpions um, is the red an Indian red scorpion. Um, it is only about three or four inches long, so ma imagine, just about that long. And it's kind of a bright orange, maybe even more toward the brownish color, uh, more than red itself. But when you look at it, it has a very fat tail. And believe it or not, fat-tailed scorpions are a species of scorpions who are of all the, the fat one, tailed ones are the most lethal of all the scorpions. If you are stung, or what would you ever say, bit by a scorpion, um, it is, has a 8% to 40% fatality rate, which is pretty strong. And if you are a child, um, the rate is even higher. Uh, it, it, it induces, if you're stung by a scorpion or bit by a scorpion, um, it induces vomiting, sweating, breathlessness, and often can cause death. Uh, by pulmonary edema. And strange fact, um, believe it or not, the article that I read on the Indian red scorpion said that even though it can be very, very lethal, that in India, people have these types of scorpions as pets. Yeah, you don't know. I can't get it any better than you can. I can't grasp that why you want to. But it's true that people have some of the most lethal, lethal scorpions as pets. But the truth is that it's not the bite of the scorpion, the article said. It's not the stinger itself. It's the poison that comes through the stinger that is the lethalness. That's the lethal part of it. And so here's what Paul says. The sting of death is sin. See, Jesus' death and resurrection has taken the poison out of our souls. The penalty of the poison that comes with sin has been removed through Jesus' sacrifice. That's why today, and maybe it's you, as you're listening to me speak this morning, maybe this you, there are a lot of people who are absolutely terrified and afraid to die. Um, listen, and the reason is, for many people, is that they know that they are still poisoned. Can I say it to you that way? Um, we have eternity set in our hearts. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes says. And we know in our consciences, consciences that death does not end our lives in extinction. That there is more to this than this life. And after death, Hebrews 9.27, the Bible says there is judgment. And so many people, knowing that their lives are still poisoned by sin, they understand 
what that means if there's an afterlife and they're not right with God and their life is full of poison and sin and things that they've done wrong, that their life hasn't been lived out the way they thought it should be. And they know that, that they're afraid to die because they're afraid of the judgment. And can I tell you this? Paul goes on to say that it's not just the sting, the sting of sin is the law. It says, but the power of sin is the law. And here's, here's what he said. Here's what he means by that. Because of sin, we are under the law, and therefore we are under judgment, and we are under condemnation. Because the law can only condemn people. It cannot save people. And see, that's what makes us afraid to die, because we know that we're sinners, and we know that we haven't lived our life the right way. And because of that, in our consciousness, we understand that we're poisoned by sin and that we know that when we stand before judgment, we're not going to meet the criteria or the requirements. So people are afraid to die. See, they're not ready for the judgment to follow. They haven't lived the life they thought they should have. And sin's stinger, as it were, is still in them. And so people are afraid. Shakespeare writes through Hamlet in one of his books, these words to really describes why people are afraid. Hamlet says, I could end it all. In other words, he was contemplating suicide. But that dread of something after death, the undiscovered, the undiscovered country from which no traveler returns, this conscience makes cowards of us all. In other words, Hamlet said, I think I want to kill myself. I don't want to live anymore. He goes, but I really can't kill myself. And you know why? It's the dread. The dread that after life, there's more to it. That I'm going to give an account of my life. That there's going to be a judgment. And my conscience, bearing witness to that, makes me a coward. That I really can't end my life. So you say, Pastor Walker, if the sting uh, is sin and the strength or the power of sin is the law, then how do I get rid of this thing? How do I get rid of the poison that's still in my soul? Well, Paul gives us the answer. And that's verse 57. The victory of Jesus' death and resurrection, that's the, that's the answer. That's the solution. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul can't help when he contemplates what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has accomplished and how he's taken out the poison from our souls and how he has delivered us a victory when we don't have to fear death any longer. He, when he thinks of all those things, he has to break out into song of gratitude. He has to break out with proverbial praise and really, as it were, worship to God. And he does it using the word thanks. It's the Greek word charis, and it's the word for grace. And if you know anything about the entire book of Corinthians, that you'll know that this book is absolutely framed by grace. At the beginning and the opening verses of chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says all kinds of things that begin the book about grace. He ends the book in chapter 16 and verse 23. He's talking about God's grace being with them. Chapter 3 and verse 10, toward the beginning of the middle, he says that he's a wise master builder, and everything that he has built, as far as the church is concerned, is by the grace of God. Later, toward the end of the book, in chapter 15, our chapter, verse 10, he says this, I am what I am by the grace of God. And what Paul can't stop doing, once he has completely in his mind been you know, overwhelmed by the wonders of God's salvation and what he has accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ, 
He says, I have to tell you, I'm so thankful. I just got to extol the grace of God and tell you how thankful that I am for all that God's done. See, Paul would say that the grace of God is the anti-venom of sin and the poison that it puts into our soul. Grace eradicates the poison. The grace of God, the undeserved favor of God eradicates. It's the anti-venom for the poison that is flood floods our soul. That's why Paul goes on to explain it even more clearly as the verse 57 goes on. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory. See, that's what grace is. It's God giving you and I what we don't deserve. And Paul would want us to know and does let us know as he writes 1 Corinthians and elsewhere in the New Testament that there is no way, shape, or form that we could ever fight and win the battle with sin in ourselves. We could never fight this battle. We could never win it. We could not be good enough. We could not be good enough to earn or merit this victory over sin. No, Jesus had to be good in our place. And, and, and that's why the Bible says that he's given us the victory. Death is stingless only because of God's grace that has been given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because we're Christians, because we're trusting in Christ, because we put our faith in his work on the cross and, and through his death and resurrection. See, death can bite us. It can sting us, but not eternally. See, the poison has been removed and therefore Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that we have no fear. And that is so well summed up in the little verse in Hebrews 2.14, which says, Through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And listen, Perhaps there are some of you this morning and you sit in churches when you can be there and when it's possible to be in person. You listen to sermons on the internet. You're listening perhaps this morning to this sermon. But if you're honest and you're humble enough, you'd have to admit that there are many, many nights that you put your head on the pillow and you're not sure where you're going to spend eternity. That you're, you're not sure that you're not one of those cowardice people because of their conscience who are going to face judgment, and you're not really sure how it's going to go. See, it doesn't have to be that way, because God, through Jesus Christ, has given us the victory. But you can't do it on your own. You can't try to earn your way. It's not because you're a good person or you give money to the church. It's not because you're Baptist or Catholic or Episcopalian or Lutheran or, or Roman, whatever it is. It's not about your religion. It's about a relationship. It's about saying, Father, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And my only hope of heaven is Jesus. See, it's victory. It's only through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not through you. It's not through your denomination. It's not through your good work. It's not through your giving. It's not through your self-righteousness. It's only through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the salvation that he has given to us. That's the fearlessness that we have over the sting and poison of death. So let me say it to you this way. That Jesus' death on the cross is the payment for your sin, and Jesus' resurrection is the receipt. And, and what do you mean by that, Pastor Walker? How is the resurrection of Jesus Christ the receipt? Well, the resurrection is your cosmic receipt, because well, why do you get receipts? You have receipts and you keep receipts for only one reason, so that you can prove that you owe nothing. 
that the thing that's been purchased has been paid in full. See, that's what the resurrection is, and that's why Paul broke into thanksgiving. Because the resurrection, the fact that Jesus was alive, was his receipt. It was, it was the verification, and it was the proof that he didn't owe anything as far as his sin debt was concerned. It had all been paid for fully on the cross when Jesus said it was, fin it, it was finished, that his debt was done. And when he put his faith and trust in Christ Jesus, here's, here's what Paul says, See, that reality is yours as well. And that changes your entire future. That gives you a certainty beyond this life that you couldn't get anywhere else ever. And the certainty is this, is that your sins have been forgiven, that you're right with God, that you have peace with him, and that you can spend eternity in heaven with him. See, resurrection victory, it changes our future. But Paul says that's only half of what I like to tell you. See, resurrection victory, yes, it does, without a doubt. It, it changes our future and, Paul says, and connect it here with the therefore. See, and therefore, resurrection victory also changes your present. Your, your future life, yes. Your present life, yes. And, and can I say this? And to the degree you understand the connection represented by the little word therefore is to the degree that you will be able to be steadfast and immovable in this present life. See, because that's what Paul is saying. See, resurrection life through Jesus Christ, yes, it changes your future. It changes your life after death. But it, it, that change starts now. It starts in your life before death, he says. And here's what that victory now in the present day, in the present life, looks like. And he uses this little B word, become. In verse 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, become. That's the word. Become steadfast and immovable. It's a present tense verb. It's a command. This is what you should become. And it indicates a trajectory. That if you have the life in you and your future has changed, here's what it'll look like in the present. You'll be becoming a certain kind of person. And so what the Paul's going to say to us, is that resurrection life changes you now in this way. It changes you on the inside, and it changes you on the outside. It's going to change you at the level of your being, and it changes you at the level of your doing. See, it'll change you completely. Let me give you an example of knowing that you have your future secure in Jesus Christ, that his resurrection changes your future. Let me show you how when you connect that to your life, it'll change your life now. Listen to Johnny Erickson Tata who has been a quadriplegic since she was 16, year old, 16 years old. She is now 71. And I just read the report a few days ago that she had uh, contracted COVID-19. Um, she recently recovered from her second bout with cancer. She describes herself as someone who has fragile lungs and a very uh, fragile immune system. Knowing all of that about herself and knowing that she has COVID-19 and how severely dangerous that is, Here's what she says, and I quote, Jesus knows exactly where the virus is and where it's going next and who will get it and who will not get it. He has prudent purposes for this disease and its impact on my life. Did you hear what she said? Prudent purposes. 
In other words, here's a woman knowing that her future is secure through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what she can do? She can submit to COVID-19 as God's prudent purpose. See, that's where the future connects to the present. It's changed her response to what could be a lethal sickness for her, one that ends up taking her life. She doesn't know that, but what she does know is that she has a gracious God whose purposes are prudent and wise, and he knows exactly what's taking place in her body and in her life, and he's done that all the way through since she was 16 to 71, and let me tell you this, the article goes on to basically say this, and she's not changing now because she is basing her whole life on that. See, that's what God's grace does. That's what salvation does. That's what knowing that Jesus is is alive now, it affects how we face our present life. And so he says to the Corinthians and to us, here's what I want the change to look like in your life. Here's the person that you need to be becoming. Here's the two words. Ready? This, this shows the inside change. Steadfast and immovable. And they are two words that are the opposite sides of the same coin, as it were. Let me tell you what that means. Steadfast <coughs> is a word that speaks of firmness of conviction that you really are standing strong on what you believe to be true. Immovable, on the other side of the coin, speaks to the Corinthians' tendency to be shifting or swaying away from that conviction. And in the context, the conviction that Paul's talking about is the gospel conviction, the the conviction that Jesus died for us. And for our sins, and that on the third day he rose again, and he spent a lot of time in this very chapter convincing them from 500 eyewitnesses and from the apostles and Paul, who was born out of due time, and the scriptural truth about Jesus' resurrection and what that means for us. And he says, "Here's what you need to do when you bank on your life on that, and, and you are certain uh, about the gospel truth of Jesus' death and resurrection." He says, "What you can't do then is move away from it." Uh, let me give you an example of how that word is used. Um, Colossians 1.23, again, Paul writes, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, and here's the word, not shifting away from the hope of the gospel, not moving off. Um, I, I'm convinced more than ever, and I, I want to say this as your pastor this morning, that we need to be ready to be steady. Um, we need to be ready to be steady. Uh, we cannot be a people like what is happening in a lot of Christianity, and I would call celebrity Christianity today, that are watering down the gospel, that we are now ashamed of the offense of the cross of Jesus. There are too many uh, people that we thought were dependable and, and reliable as far as holding to the faith are now vacillating in their doctrinal beliefs because of secular and governmental pressure. I read just today that Virginia has a set of new transgender rules for their public schools. Um, The article says in in the title that they now have to use preferred pronouns for people, that whatever pronoun they want you to call them. And you cannot question um, bathroom choices made by students. And so you have to go along with all the things our world is touting is true about transgender. And in the article, it even said this, and that staff at the school, the public schools, are to turn in parents if they believe that parents aren't, and this is getting in line, and they were promoting for them to 
to call child protection services if parents are hurting their children by not acknowledging their transgender uh, personal choices. That's the state of things in the public school system in Virginia. Um, but that shouldn't surprise us um, because uh, things in America are changing. But what is surprising is oftentimes from, from preachers and pastors and pulpits and professors all throughout Christianity that people are now moving and shifting and swaying themselves in, in, in this winds of all the change that is taking place. And we have to be ready to be steady. Why? Because the Bible says that we should be steadfast and immovable. But to the world around us, Christians who are steadfast and immovable, to them, other words should be used. That means that Christians are intolerant. It means that they are narrow-minded. It means that their views are antiquated and they are exclusive and bigoted. And, and those are the words, not steadfast and immovable. They're not going to look at it as a virtue. Oh no, not whatsoever. We live in a culture that has no virtue along those lines because they don't believe in absolute truths. And so a lot of Christians who were once holding the ground on the issues of homosexuality and morality and uh, uh, who is to be preacher in the pulpit, and men, not women. Those used to be obvious ones that we would hold to. And seven-day creation, and the history of Adam and Eve, the historicity of it. And now evolution is now the main view, not seven-day creation. Um, no longer uh, is it all of God's people who hold the definition of marriage between one man and one woman in God for life. Um, not not as many, not nearly as many. In fact, it's becoming more difficult to find people, even as Christians, who understand what sexual identity and sexual morality should be all about. Um, instead, today, we are divided over issues like nationalism and racism. And that's what's happening in our culture. And so Paul's words that connected by therefore about how the future resurrection that we have in Christ and how it impacts our present couldn't be any more relevant than they need to be today. A Mighty Fortress. I, I love that song. And the last stanza in my mind, uh, using words, shows how important it is for the future, and all God's future that he has for us needs to press into our current day. And when Martin Luther writes, that word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Listen to this. His kingdom is forever. You see what he's saying? How do you have the ability to let goods and kindred go? How, how do you handle it when you lose your job over standing steadfast and immovable in the truth? How do you do it when your own family forsakes you or maligns you or betrays you? How do you do that? How do you stand? And, and even if your life is threatened and your freedom is threatened, how do, how do you continue to be steadfast? Why? Because you're part of a kingdom that is forever. See what he says? See, it's knowing that your future is certain, that Jesus has been resurrected in you because he lives, you will live also. See, that enables us to be steadfast and movable, but not just at that level. See, the Apostle Paul says, knowing that you are resurrected with Jesus Christ not only changes you at the level of your being, but it also changes you in the present at the level of your doing. And, and, and here's what he says, the participle, always abounding 
in the work of the Lord. Uh, the word abounding is a word that is often translated eagerness. It, it denotes an excessiveness going way beyond what is normally acceptable. Um, it, the same word is used earlier in this chapter uh, when Paul speaks about how hard he works for the gospel. In chapter 15 and verse 10, here's what he says in comparison to how he labors to the other apostles. He says, I worked harder than all of them. And he's not saying it to brag on himself. He's bragging on the power of the grace of God in him. And he, and he says, if you have the grace of God in you, look at verse 10. Uh, um, 10 of chapter 15, then you'll have God's grace will also be toward you and God's grace will also be with you. See, in every sphere of his life, from every angle, whether it was in him, toward him, with him, he says, this is what God's grace does for you. It doesn't just change your destiny someday. It changes your desires. It changes your deeds. Paul says, it makes me want to work hard. It makes me want to labor and sweat and toil. And in fact, he goes on to define this work ethic that he has. Um, by calling it labor. His labor is not in vain, and it means to exert yourself to the point of exhaustion. And Paul says, you know why I keep going? You know why I keep being beaten and imprisoned and whipped and at times stoned? And, and you know how he keeps going from city to city and traveling in the boats and the wrecks and the all? You know how he keeps going? He says, because God's grace, this victory that I have in Jesus Christ is working in me. And so I would say to this to you this morning, if you are abounding in the future, you are also being abounding in the present. Why? Why is that true? Because we know something. We have a confidence. We have a truth, a reality that's working in us that other people don't have. And Paul lets us know exactly what that is. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, that's the being level. Now the doing, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing what is it that he knows what that in the Lord, and that's the key, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your labor, all the things that you do for Christ and for his kingdom and for his church and for others, all the things that you do in the name of Jesus Christ and for the gospel's sake and for the kingdom's sake, they're not empty. They're not just a shell they're not just a form and fashion. They have meaning. They have purpose. They have significance. Not just for now, he says, but for eternity. Four times, four times in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul uses the word vain or in vain. Chapter 15 and verse 2, he says, you have not believed in vain since Christ has been resurrected. Since Christ is resurrected, he says, you are not been graced or saved in vain. It has purpose and meaning that your life has been changed. And he says in chapter 15 and verse 14, that our preaching or your, their preaching is not in vain. Telling other people about Jesus and witnessing to this gospel is not in vain. It's not an empty exercise. It's not just a meaningless mantra that we speak. No, it has purpose and meaning and significance because Jesus is alive. And finally, he comes to the end of the chapter and he says, let me just tell you one more time. That if you are in the Lord, that you've trusted Jesus' death and resurrection as payment for the poison of your sin. He says, your labor, all the sweat and all the effort 
and all the labor that you do in junior church and in the nursery and Awana and in youth group as a youth leader and, and you are trying to witness to your lost friends and neighbors and you are in small groups or you are in a D group and you are in ministry and you sing in the choir when we have that back. And you have all, if you're, if you're part of those things, he says it's not empty, it's not in vain, it has purpose, lasting, eternal purpose. We all know and understand that knowing certain facts change how we respond and how we live in any given set of circumstances. Let me give you an example. And knowing that you had $10 million in the bank would allow you to respond differently to losing your job. If you lost your job, you wouldn't be too worried and you wouldn't you might be upset because you really like that job, but knowing this truth that you had 10 million dollars in the bank, you weren't worried about uh, where your next meal's coming from or whether you're going to be able to pay the mortgage or keep your car or pay your kids' college bills because $10 million is going to cover that. See, see, knowing that reality, knowing that truth about the substantial amount of money in your bank account would make a difference, wouldn't it? If they came out with a vaccine for COVID-19 and they said it was 100% good, 100% that when you got this vaccine, you never had to worry about ever getting COVID-19, it would change. If you had taken that vaccine and you know that you have, you've had that, See, you would face a, a world that's in a pandemic quite differently, wouldn't you? I mean, you wouldn't be afraid to go in certain places and you wouldn't be afraid to talk to people and you could visit people in a hospital and, you know, because you had the vaccine and knowing what that vaccine does would change how you live and how you respond and just about everything in that situation. So knowing that we are saved, knowing that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again on the third day and is alive. Knowing that, here's what Paul says, knowing that Jesus has a future for us and you connect that knowledge and that future to our present daily living as Christians, Paul says it should radically and drastically change your life. On the inside, that you should be bold that you should be able to hold to the truths of Scripture and you wouldn't have to back down, that you can speak the truth in love to everyone that you come in contact with. And not only does it change you in what you believe and how you hold it, but it changes the way that you live your life every day. It changes your priorities and your calendar and what your money really is going to go to and your time and what matters most to you and what you're going to teach your kids about what life is really all about. See, it changes. It changes everything in our lives. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's Paul, in Paul's words, that's what the victory, the resurrection victory of Jesus looks like. It looks like a life that's been changed. A life, yes, that's been changed in the future after death. But also a life that has been changed in this very moment in the present by the way that we hold truth and the way that we love truth and as Proverbs says, we buy truth and sell it not. And the way that we live truth. And we live it out abundantly as we work for the Lord. See, we're not saved by works, but we have a salvation that works. Let me ask you this morning. Is that, is that what the victory you say that you have? Does it look like that? Does it look like that inside of you and outside of you? Let's pray.
Father, how can we not say one more time, thanks be to you, God, for the victory that you've given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, that victory is not to be just pushed off until another day down the road when we are called home to glory through death. But it can begin, and it is beginning now in our lives. Resurrection power now in the way that we hold our convictions and we believe and hold on to the truth and how we live it and practice it and work it out with fear and trembling every single day. Help us to live out the victory, the resurrection victory of Jesus Christ every day like that. And for those, again, uh, uh, a Lord who are here and don't have that confidence, in fact, maybe here and are still, still, still fearing, fearing death, Father, may you allow your word of God, the grace that you have that is given to us in Christ Jesus, may, may there, it flood their souls. May they come to you for the forgiveness of sins. May you grant them repentance that they might turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in the one who was crucified uh, for them and rose again on the third day. And we'll thank you for all these rich blessings to sinners and saints alike. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.